Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The FT. The changing face of buy-to-let lending. Widespread confusion over the care fees cap. We look at what is, and more importantly, what is not included. And we look at the overseas companies on Britain's stock market in the week that two Russian-backed mining firms are removed from the blue-chip FTSE 100 index. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Elaine Moore. Hello. Tanya Poli. Hi. And our special studio guest, Tim Pethick of Saga. Hello. The rise of the amateur landlord has been one of the defining trends in the property market over the past 10 or 15 years. Disillusioned with the poor performance of the stock market after the bursting of the dot-com bubble, many Britons poured money into property instead. There are now over a million buy-to-let landlords in the UK and those numbers look set to rise as buying a house remains beyond the means of many young people, in the southeast particularly, so there's an army of people condemned to long-term renting. Becoming a landlord isn't quite as easy as it used to be, though. The choice of mortgage products available is smaller and a would-be landlord typically now needs quite a large deposit. Costs are rising too, as the government imposes more regulation on the sector. This week, there was some good and bad news for those in the buy-to-let business. Tanya Poli has more details. Tanya, let's do the good news first. This relates to Nationwide, the building society. What did they announce this week? So basically, um, on um, Wednesday, the Mortgage Works, which is actually part of the Nationwide Building Society, but it's their kind of buy-to-let specialist lending arm, um, they made an announcement that they will actually um, remove this restriction that they've had in place for, you know, however many years, where landlords can only um, offer tenancy agreements of up to a maximum of 12 months. Um, so this has been something that nearly all lenders have as part of their kind of, you know, within the clauses of their uh, buy-to-let mortgage agreements. And it's p- basically been there because um, buy-to-let lenders kind of say that it, it mitigates this risk because if the landlord ends up defaulting on their buy-to-let loan, um, it means that the landlord, the lender can actually come in quicker and actually sort of, you know, um, take back the property and then like resell it. So I think that, like, that's been their main argument why they've had it. But now, um, because of obviously all the things that you were talking about, the fact that there is this demand for long-term renting and consumer and both industry groups have been calling for uh, more long-term tenancy agreements to be available. Um, Nationwide are actually the first um, big major buy-to-let lender to actually come out and say they will um, amend their policy and actually um, allow landlords to um, do tenancy agreements of up to up to three years. Okay, and that differs. The normal setup is what six to twelve months. Tends to be six to twelve months. Twelve months is probably um, sort of the standard um, clause at the moment. 
I, I can see that that's um, probably a better arrangement for many tenants. They have uh, more security of tenure. They they have less disruption. Could it also be better for landlords, though? Yeah, a lot of the um, industry groups and landlords I've been speaking to this week have said actually, for many landlords, um, they will prefer this because if they find a good tenant that they feel you know that they like in their property and they know that they work well together and they know that they're reliable, they actually it's better for them because they don't have void periods. They kind of know that they're always going to get their rent paid and they trust that tenant to kind of be a good tenant basically for the landlord. So that's really what a landlord wants. They don't want to have to have these void periods. They would much prefer to have a tenant for a longer term that actually is paying rent on time and looks after their property. Okay, and that's the good news. Now what, uh, there was some bad news for buy-to-let lenders this week as well, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Um, So we've been talking about um, sort of the the fact that rates have been falling for quite a while, largely on the back of the government's funding for lending scheme, which is kind of um, enabling most lenders to borrow at a cheaper rate than actually on the money markets. Um, But over the last week, um, and actually over the last month as a whole, we've seen quite a big spike in um, the cost of borrowing on these money markets. Um, which still does affect lenders. And actually, one of the big buy-to-let lenders this week, Paragon Mortgages, um, was actually, well, they actually had to withdraw all of their fixed-rate buy-to-let mortgage products on Tuesday because of this massive spike in swap rates, um, which is basically swap rates are used by lenders to kind of sort of price um, their fixed-rate deals. Um, so it has a quite a big impact on most lenders. I mean, we should say it was probably not as much as in the past because of the funding for lending scheme, but it still plays part in nearly every lender's um, you know, funding funding costs. Okay. Are we expecting to see that um, from other uh, big lenders in the buy-to-let space? Because they're less able, aren't they, to access funding for lending than mainstream lenders? Um, well, yes, with specialist lenders like Paragon Mortgages, which um, isn't actually a bank, um, they don't have any direct access to the funding for lending scheme. Um, under the... Um, extended funding for lending scheme that was announced in April, there may be a way that they can have a kind of indirect access by borrowing through the banks that have access to the funding for lending scheme. So it's all rather complicated and convoluted. And a lot of people say that actually it'll be very difficult for them to even do that um, as part of an indirect access. So they are much more uh, reliant on the money markets and getting their funding for providing mortgages that way. So this is partly why Paragon has had had this issue this week. Um, where we've seen a few movements from other residential um, mortgage providers. So Coventry Building Society this week also pulled a lot of their five-year fixed rates. Um, and there's been a few lenders sort of repricing slightly upwards, but there hasn't been this mad rush that would have necessarily been the case pre-funding for lending scheme, basically. Okay, so if you have a residential mortgage, no need to worry just yet. Thank you very much, Tanya. You can read more about the changes to -to buy-to-let mortgage terms in this weekend's FT Money, which also features a piece about a significant change to property taxation in Scotland, one which could eventually form the blueprint for similar changes in England and Wales. FT Money is available on both Saturday and Sunday as part of FT Weekend. You can also read via the FT's tablet apps on Kindle or online at www.ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave comments, you can do so online or email us. The address is money at ft.com. Still to come on the show, should investors be concerned about the number of foreign companies listed on the UK stock market? But first, the challenge of long-term care. As we all live longer and our health needs become more complex, more and more of us face the prospect of having to spend part of our lives in some kind of a care home. Quite naturally, most of us would rather not think about this prospect or plan for it financially. But we should, 
because residential medical care is astronomically expensive and the state will only pay for some of it, and even then only in strictly limited circumstances. Earlier this year, the government confirmed a new regime for funding long-term care, which includes a cap on the amount that the patient must pay. One of the reasons it did so was to provide greater certainty for the care industry and for citizens. However, it seems the government still has an awful lot of work to do to get this message across. We commissioned Saga, an organisation that offers financial and other services for the over-50s, to carry out some research about public awareness of the proposals. The results were worrying. 53% of people did not know of the existence of the cap or of its level. 69% believed that the accommodation costs of the care home would count towards the cap. And 32% believed they could move into any home of their choice and the fees would count towards the cap. All of these things are, in whole or in part, incorrect. I'm joined now by Tim Pethick, who's Chief Executive of Saga, Tim, let's uh, try and clear up some of the confusion about care fees. At what point will the state step in and pay for your long-term care? Well, currently all care needs need to be assessed before the state will pay, and there are uh, standard assessment criteria ranging from low to moderate to substantial to critical care needs. And um, Generally speaking, the state will step in to support your care needs if you have critical or substantial care needs. Increasingly over the last few years, what we've seen is more and more uh, your care needs will only be funded by the state if you have uh, critical care needs. Now, that is a bit of a postcode lottery. One of the changes that's being made is that there will be standardisation of that assessment process across the, the country. Um, but clearly the other thing that has been uh, announced to change from April 2016 is this notion of a cap on fees. And our view is that, and supported by the research, obviously that's more smoke and mirrors than uh, than a, a, a real substantial backstop. Okay, and wh- where does the cap kick in? How much do you have to contribute? How much will the state contribute? Well, it's very difficult to know where the cap kicks in in an individual circumstance because everybody's circumstances are different. So the cap is £72,000, and the government is on record as saying nobody will have to pay more than £72,000 for their care costs. That's actually not the case. Um, what happens is that your care needs will be assessed Uh, If, for example, a local authority determines that you need a care home um, and the local authority might determine or social services might determine that care home cost that they're prepared to fund is £400 a week, Um, but it might be that you need a care home that has specialist services or there's not a care home available at £400 a week, you may pay substantially more than that. And so... As well as that, not all of the elements of that care home are included in what the local authority will pay. So as you've said, accommodation costs, that's board, food, uh, is not included in that care cap. So you might find that you're paying £1,000 a week, the local authority will fund £400 a week of that, and it's that £400 a week of assessed needs that counts towards the cap. Can you give us some idea of the kind of uh, conditions that need to be met in order for a local authority to assess you as requiring uh, care? How ill do you have to be effectively? Well, essentially very ill. There's uh, this notion of activities of daily living. Activities of daily living, of course, are things like um, being able to shop, clean, look after your environment or your home, um, take care of your personal care needs. Now, as an example, a moderate care need is if you're unable to carry out personal care. 
that's if you're unable to bathe yourself. Um, now, that is not funded. So critical care needs or substantial care needs are things that are life-threatening conditions where you're unable to carry out all of the activities of daily living. Uh, so it is, it is when you're very ill indeed that um, your care is assessed as being funded by the state. Okay. And if even if the uh, local authority uh, does step in and does make a contribution to your care, what happens then? Do you get to just say, well, I'd like to go and stay in this home, please, because it's near to my um, offspring or my principal support? Or, or do you just basically have to go where the local authority sends you? It's like most other things in life, you pay for choice. So you can choose um, whatever care home or whatever care solution you want, but if it doesn't align with what the local authority has assessed as your needs, then you'll need to pay the difference. There, It's also care is uh, means tested. So um, one of the other changes that comes into effect in April 2016 is the uh, the uh, asset level um, for the means test has been increased. At this stage, if you have uh, fewer than £14,250 of assets, excluding your home, the local authority will pick up all your care needs. If you have more than £23,250 of assets, you need to fund all of your care needs and the local authority will fund none. Okay, so there's a little bit of uh, improvement there. What happens though if um, if you run out of money altogether and you're unable to pay um, either for the for the cost of medical care or for the for the what what are termed the accommodation costs, the food and the board and so on? What happens then? Well, then you really have no choice, and the local authority will need to uh, support you uh, because at that stage, obviously, your assets uh, are less than the fourteen thousand two hundred and fifty pounds, um, and there is an obligation on the local authority to provide care and support, but it's the care and support that they assess you as needing. So um, any element of of choice goes at that point. Okay. And finally, do you see any evidence that that older people particularly are thinking about uh, a long-term care or planning for the the possibility of it in in financial terms? Or is it something that people really just do not want to think about for most of their lives? I think people don't want to think about it. And I think certainly it's the case that people really aren't planning for it. Um, And I think the results of the uh, poll that we did uh, support the notion that there's significant confusion about it. Now, it's, of course, very difficult to plan in an environment where it's complex and you're confused about it. So the starting point for for planning process is is understanding the environment that you're walking into. Now, essentially, if you boil it down to its simplicity, everyone is likely to have some care needs at some stage and, and most people, uh, certainly most people with any form of savings, are going to need to fund some form of care themselves. Okay. Do you think the government could do more to increase awareness and get people better prepared? Is there anything you'd like to see them to see them doing particularly? Yeah, I think awareness is is uh, fundamentally important. I think communication about how all this is going to work and the impact on people is is uh, is critical. I think the government needs to come clean on the fact that uh, they simply can't afford to support everybody in in um, later life, and I think people need to start preparing themselves to uh, pay for their own care. Okay, thank you very much, Tim. That was Tim Pethick, the chief executive of Saga. We've lots more on the challenges of care for older people in this weekend's FT Money, which also features a guide to what's called lasting power of attorney, a legal mechanism that allows you to take control of the financial affairs of someone who is no longer able to cope with financial affairs on their own. On to our final item for today, the FTSE's Foreign Legion. 
You may think that your FTSE 100 tracker fund is full of shares like Tesco, Vodafone and GlaxoSmithKline, well-known names that are as British as fish and chips, cups of tea and the rain. But did you know that a lot of the UK stock market is also home to a whole host of companies, particularly from the former Soviet Union and India? Several of them are in the FTSE 100 and lots more are in the mid-cap index, the FTSE 250. But how much do we really know about these companies and is it necessarily a good thing that they are listed on our markets? Elaine Moore has been looking. Elaine, let's uh, start by naming some names. Who are these companies? Uh, where are they from and, and what sort of people are behind them? Well, the reason that I was interested in this topic this week is because two of these companies, they're Russian commodity companies called Polymetal and Evraz, have actually dropped out of the FTSE 100 this week. They're now in the FTSE 250. Um, these are both Russian commodity companies. One of them is uh, part owned by Roman Abramovich and it's a precious metals miner. Um, the other one, uh, but what's quite interesting is that the performance of both of them has been terrible over the last year. They've been replaced by uh, UK um, house building companies. So that in itself is a really interesting shift, isn't it, in in the makeup of the leading stock index. Um, but I think what's quite interesting is I wonder how many listeners to the FT Money podcast, how many private investors out there realise that the FTSE 100 is not necessarily made up of recognisable UK company names. So you might assume that it's Tesco, Marks and Spencers, but it's it's Russian commodity companies. Mm-hmm. How come so many became listed here? How did it sort of happen? It's not as if Moscow doesn't have a stock exchange. Well, it's very interesting and it's uh, also potentially quite contentious issue. Um, some people would say that uh, UK deregulation has encouraged companies to come and list over here. Also, FTSE 100, um, it's a it's a very recognisable brand. It's a, it's a sort of elite place to go and list. So it, um, it's something that is a, appealing to companies um, to come and do that. But also, what's uh, it's all kind of indicative of the way that companies work across the world. So um, one analyst said to me this morning that the way that you can describe most of the companies on the, on the FTSE 100 is they're global-facing companies, which means that... Um, they are influenced by things that happen all over the world. And this is actually true of companies that list in, in all the major stock markets. We aren't self-contained uh, as countries. We are the companies that operate, operate all over the place. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have expressed concern about uh, corporate governance. Uh, that's the, the sort of way these uh, companies are, are run and, and the, the sort of connections between the people who own them. Um, are these legitimate worries, do you think? I think they are. I think also a legitimate worry is is how much private investors know that these worries are out there. I think a lot of private investors would assume that if a company lists on the London Stock Exchange, then there has been sufficient um, inquiries into that company that mean that they are a suitable place for investment. We shouldn't forget that investment in the FTSE 100 is, is something that is huge in pension companies. So a lot of the money that's being put aside for our futures is dependent on the performance of companies in the FTSE 100. So um, in order to kind of go to sleep at night and not worry about things, we, we all sort of all have to assume that those companies are run well and that they're an appropriate place for long-term money, whether they are or not. Uh, FTSE, you know, the FTSE would say, yes, they are, but who knows? 
Okay. And finally, um, you mentioned that um, that two of those companies are in fact being uh, demoted this week. Uh, are there signs that more are coming here and looking to list and so that eventually they could be replaced by other Russian or Kazakh or Georgian companies? I think there are signs that that's been happening for the last few years. Um, the interesting thing about the FTSE 100 is how heavily weighted it is towards certain industries. So at the moment, it's even though we've lost these two Russian commodity companies, mining still makes up a huge proportion. The FTSE 100, it's not spread out equally across different industries and financial companies as well they are also a large proportion so uh, they were larger pre-crisis but they still make up a large part of the um of the FTSE 100 so um it's it's interesting to wonder whether this means that if you invest in a tracker fund assuming that you are that that's a sort of safe you know bet way to invest in stocks and shares actually you're making a sort of judgment on the performance of certain industries you're not making a judgment on the performance of general companies across the world. Okay, thank you very much Elaine. You can read more about the FTSE's Foreign Legion and what investors think of them in this weekend's FT Money. We'd love to hear your views too. You can add comments at the foot of articles on our website or you can email us directly. The address once again is money at ft.com. Don't forget you can read about money online throughout the week at ft.com forward slash money where you'll also find blog posts and useful tools like our pension calculator and the latest annuity rates. There's also more from this weekend's edition of FT Money, including my verdict on Mervyn King's years at the Bank of England and US money manager Ken Fisher on why worrying about US debt levels is missing the point. But until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Elaine, Tanya and our special guest, Tim Pethick of Saga. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.